0: Welcome to In Conversation, brought to you by Fine Music Sydney. In each episode, our host, Simon Moore, speaks to one of the important figures who
1: make up Australia's artistic landscape. Over the course of the programme, you'll hear all about our guests' life, work and interests, along with a number of musical pieces of their choice.
0: The following conversation was first broadcast in February 2021.
1: Hello, I'm Simon Moore. This is In Conversation on Fine Music Sydney. Alexander Berlage is an award-winning theatre director and lighting designer. His recent sold-out production of American Psycho won nine Sydney Theatre Awards, including Best Direction of a Musical, which is not bad, considering he'd only gone and won that same award the year before. He's my guest in the studio today. Alexander Berlage, thank you so much for being in conversation with me today. Hello, thank you for having me. Well, it must be very cool to rattle off such a long list of awards for just one of your babies. Um, Tell me about the impact that that had on you what's kind of it was kind of
2: crazy to be honest, because um it it's uh, for those who um you know may know American Psycho as a um as a text um you know original book and movie, it's such a polarizing uh sort of you know story and um and you know set of ideas that um you know I was sort of going into it you know being like the audiences are either going to Get it, and it's going to be fantastic. Or I'm going to be like picketed out of town. So I'm. I was so <laughs> kind of relieved um, when um, we managed to make a production that uh, audiences understood and found some sort of resonance with
1: that. Um, it yet yeah, was able to get such a sort of accolade. I mean, it is quite an interesting. Text, as you say, I mean, it's, it is it's originally a book, but people probably are more familiar with the, the film. Yeah. With Christian Bale. So how much, when you're putting together a production like that, how much are you relying on your audience being familiar with with it already or, or does that kind of change? Well I have to, I don't want to do that because it'll look like I'm trying to rip off the film or, or, or p- yeah, referencing yeah. it. Yeah, I mean it's an interesting question because I mean, American Psycho is is
2: so, um there, there are certain moments and sayings in it which are so iconic and um we kind of found that there's like three types of relationships you have with the text for American Psycho. Mm-hmm. You've either read the book, you've either seen the entire movie or you either think you've seen the entire movie because you've seen that famous scene with the axe and the couch, you know, underscore <laughs> By Hip to Be Square. So there's kind of like three different types of people. So, but all of them had seen that iconic scene, mm. essentially. If there's one thing we knew we needed to do, that scene as it was in the film because when you come to see the musical you know you're expecting you're that scene that you're, you're waiting for that moment yeah. and so you know that was the big thing that we sort of knew going into it but besides um, that we really um, wanted to approach it and um, through a very sort of much more queer um, lens and and also sort of push the um, sort of elements of feminism which um, uh, the uh, directors of the film really started to sort of pepper in in their, um, in their interpretation oh, so, so that's not really in the book well I mean, the book is the book is written by um, like a, a a gay man, but then the film was directed by um, an incredible incredible female director, mm. and she actually you know started to sort of put a, a sort of spin on it, where her big thing was about not making the violence of the um of the novel and the text um something to be celebrated, but something to really be disturbed by and, mm. and um and we sort of wanted to take that further and really sort of like hold up a hold up a mirror to the disgusting and um and really sort of um problematic moments in this world, both, both the violence, but also the, um, inherent sort of capitalism and obsession with self. So, um, yeah, it was, um, it was a really interesting challenge kind of putting it all together, but, um, yeah, we really wanted to sort of create something which wasn't just the film on stage or Mm. wasn't just a book on stage, but something that was inherently theatrical and as an audience member felt like it kind of invaded every crevice of you, uh, both like sort of intellectually and sensorially and, you Mm. know, the design team did a, a, a very,
1: um, a very incredible job at doing that. Mm. So in terms of the staging, I mean, because this is, this is a production that, uh, well, not a production, but a, a musical which originated overseas, mm. obviously. So when you're creating it in Australia for the first time, mm. do you allow the overseas version to impact your creation or do you? Yeah. take it completely from scratch. Well, the like the, the um the Broadway production sort of uh, didn't
2: really go so well um uh, unfortunately. And I think part of the reason it didn't go so well was because the venue was uh, was quite big and also mm. they 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 sanitized it. They kind of made it into this sort of strange polished commercial sort of vehicle. And then it kind of sort of lost its grit and lost its kind of little sort of you know quips and political edge. So I mean, one of the things that um, that we had uh, really going well for us was the intimacy of the space we did the show in at the Hayes, which mm. is for those who haven't been before, it's only got a hundred and ten seats, so it's this tiny little kind of hot house of a theatre space. And uh, I think um, yeah, it the um, it really it really worked in there. But um, when you're looking when you're creating a production and looking at um, at, you often sort of have moments where you you will just inevitably look at previous productions, you know, in your own curiosity. But um, we actively, you know, tried to sort of steer away as much as possible, um, yeah, from
1: trying to be um, trying to be sort of uh, influenced by it. I mean, you talked about the size of the the space. I remember the you had a sort of rotating. Um stage basically yes, yeah. um so was that to try and create more space or was that
2: oh i mean yeah i mean it, it was um it was a bit of a bit of column a a bit of column b i suppose it, it did give us more space yeah. like it meant that you know we we basically had an infinite set uh you know in, in terms of, instead of just you know a static sort of three meter by four meter sort of uh, stage space. So, I mean, that was one of the reasons we went there. But um, I think the the exciting thing about doing it in the haze was you immediately like uh, you sort of uh, forced with this challenge of I've only got, you know, Uh, eight metres by eight uh, or an eight metre by eight metre stage Mm. to do this epic musical that needs to like go from boardrooms in New York to like beaches in Hamptons to like nightclubs to Christmas banquets. And like, how am I, how do we possibly do this in this space for you know, this, um, this, you know, uh, comparatively small, uh, small budget. And it makes you kind of have to think outside of the box. You can't just do a backdrop and a, in a complete furnished setting for each um, each location, you need to go for. You need to speak, uh, think much more abstractly, and mm. and kind of think what's the overall gesture, what's the overall vehicle um, that you want to use that can um, you know, most succinctly, and most effectively support the concept that you're trying to present to the mm. audience. So. You know, in trying to solve this uh, this issue of space and this issue of you know, creating a show on this uh, budget, we inherently couldn't really do anything that looked like the original production.
1: Mm. What about... Cast and so on. Did you have to condense the cast in terms of physical number of bodies that you could have yeah. on stage? Did that have to happen as well? Well, it
2: wasn't so much physical bodies on stage. It was more, um, you know, what we could sort of fit within the parameters of, like, what we could afford to do for the right. for the show. Essentially, um, but dollars uh, rather than it, I mean dollars. I mean, <laughs> we're always thinking about the dollars in the theatre. Yeah. I mean, that's the that's the unfortunate um, thing. But um, yeah, so we had, you know, c- quite strict uh, sort of constraints of the amount of cast we can have. But I mean, I can't, looking at the production now, I can't really think of what, what I would do with any more casts. Like right, it, yeah. it, it sort of, it, it, yeah. it, it feels like we had the perfect amount like. But yeah, I mean, when, you know, when you originally do productions of, of bigger scale, like I think they had like double the amount of cast. Um, so you have to find these sort of strange, these strange, interesting ways where, you know, if a script is written to have, you know, 10 people on stage, how can we make it work with just five, but mm. make it kind of seem like it was always designed for five mm. or make the five seem like 10, you know, so you're, you're sort of forced to these little challenges of kind of, of little, um, you know, theatrical magic to just make things work, put it that way. Can you reveal
1: any of that theatrical magic or would that be telling?
2: Oh, I mean, one of the (laughs) things we just literally did was we put mirrors on stage. So, you know, automatically, you know, we had a cast of, Mm. uh, we had a cast of 12 and you act. um whack mirrors, uh, you know, we had a a rotating stage with mirrored walls, so Mm. immediately a cast of 12 looks like a cast of 24. But that's
1: interesting because I I (laughs) saw the mirrors as... uh, Yeah, but that's interesting because I saw the mirrors as as like... um part of the look at me sort of oh Oh, 100%. 100%. Like the mirrors were very... Constantly checking yourself out in the mirror. Yeah, well, the
2: mirrors were very much a conceptual um, uh, gesture about uh, really interrogating this idea of kind of narcissism, Mm. but also the surrealism of this sort of void of um, self-obsession and and sort of, you know, narcissism, self-obsession and... um, um, that Patrick found himself in. So, you know, that was really w- w- why we went down the idea of these mirrored walls spinning around, but it just so happened that it also solved issues of, um, <laughs> you know, giving the illusion of more
1: bodies on stage. <laughs> cool. Well, I think we have to have some music and uh, now, and the music's actually going to be, from the next thing, if I may say. Can you tell us about what we're about to
0: hear now?
2: Oh, yes. Uh, so I'm about to start rehearsals uh, for Young Frankenstein, the musical, uh, which will be on at the Hayes, um, opening the 18th of Feb. Um, and, uh, yeah, this this next track is um, one of the, uh, the sort of
1: big marquee numbers um, of the show. It's uh, Putting on the Ritz. And I have to warn uh, listeners who might be familiar with other editions of Putting on the Ritz that uh, there's a few moments in this that you might Find it a little bit surprising, but don't worry. Do not adjust your set.
0: If you're blue and you don't know where to go to, why don't you go where fashion sits? My is! Different types you wear a day coat, pants with stripes and cutaway go perfect fits. up like a million dollar trooper, trying hard to look like Gary Cooper, come let's mix with Rockefellers, walk with sticks or umbrellas in their midst. thoroughfare with their noses in the air high hats and arrow collars white spats
1: and lots of dollars spending every dime for a wonderful
0: time if you're blue and you don't know where to go to why don't you go where the fashion sits put 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 putting on the ritz different types you wear a day cold prints with stripes and cutaway coats that perfect fits a Ten on the ribs. Take it! da 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 da
1: Absolutely hilarious. Putting on the Ritz from Young Frankenstein. And that is, in fact, the Broadway cast of that production that we just heard then. And, well, Young Frankenstein is on at the Hayes Theatre from the 18th of February. You can find out more by going to haystheatre.com.au. But I'm very excited to have in the studio today with me the director of this production, Alex Bertlage. Alex, so why Young Frankenstein? Why Young Frankenstein? Well,
2: I've kind of found that over the last few years... um kind of established this little sort of habit or maybe, I don't I don't know why or how it's happened, but I've kind of strangely just taken these cult uh, satirical or camp movies and, um, you know, found their musical adaptation and uh, ended up directing them at the Hayes. So, I mean, I think it just makes sense. I mean, Young <laughs> Frankenstein is, you know, Mel Brooks is kind of a genius of, of comedy and... Um, and so yeah, I I I figure why not why not have a bit of a, a jaunt with Mel Brooks? I mean, it's a hilarious hilarious film and the um and the musical is equally hilarious and it, it really lends itself to being um pushed even further in a theatrical setting. So um yeah, I I I d I don't know. I suppose maybe ask the question again after we've opened and I might be able to tell you more coherently. But all I can say for now is I've just got a
1: good feeling that it's going to be fun. (laughs) Right. Um, And this was originally scheduled for last year if i recall yes we and were... the dreaded logie got in the way
2: yes we were originally meant to be on in november um, but then something i'm not sure what happened in the world no. but there was some some crazy world event <laughs> you know yes but um yeah no we're 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 opening in in feb now and, and so so happy to um, be finally getting the the show um, in front of an audience it feels like we've been working on it for
1: a length of a lifetime. Yeah, because that's that's the question. I mean, you said it was only November, so it's not like it's delayed that long. It's no. not like it was supposed to be March last year or something. Yeah. So how ready were you
2: before the pin was pulled? for those who um are listeners who um you know aren't theater practitioners it's like most of 2020 uh, a lot of a lot of theater artists couldn't really do anything mm. like we because all of our we we had no theaters to we, uh, no theaters were open you know no, we weren't allowed to rehearse anything or really work on um anything so a lot of um a lot of uh, directors and actors and designers we kind of just had to sort of sit and twiddle our thumbs and kind of hope that, you know, theaters would open soon. So we figured with um with a lot of time that we had, that we would actually just get a start and get a crack on sort of designing the show. So we actually designed it much more ahead of schedule than we normally would Mm. because we had the time Mm. and, um, and we were all, you know, really keen to make this show as incredible as it could be. So I think we had fully designed the show, um, um, and fully conceived it all by about, um, by about May. Uh, last year, which is much more ahead of schedule than we'd normally be, um, and um, and then we were sort of very close to um, to getting a season up in November. But um, it just uh, became, you know, a bit too risky, so I decided right. to to push it. But um, I mean, uh, the the set and costumes—they're all sort of pretty much ready to go, and um, and sort of conversations with lighting and sound and choreography—they're all like everyone's just like bubbling, and they're just like, <laughs> let me at it, let me at it. Like, so it's so exciting. Like, it's um, it's kind of it's it, it feels like the the, the best show. To um to sort of launch um yourself back into the theatre as a creative on like it's just mm. it's it feels like we're about to sort of go to like first day of like school or like you but it's like the most or like school camp or something and it's the most exciting thing and we're like going to like we're gonna do this and we're gonna do that and we're gonna you know play all these games and we're you know and it's mm. just going to be a complete riot so and well, you have to have your main
1: director's hat on to stop them back. oh I game. know and the cast <laughs> that
2: we have got. Uh, Like the uh, the bunch, like I think they're the silliest humans I like I know. Like they are, they're all just ridiculously talented, but they're all just the funniest, (laughs) naughtiest like actors so part of me is also just a little bit worried because I'm like what have I done why have I put this amount of like silly naughty humans in the same room together like we're not going to get <laughs> anything done but also like I can't wait to see what they're going to do because yeah they're like they, they almost scare me with how funny and ridiculous <laughs> they are.
1: But you've worked with um, at, at least some of them before. Yeah. I mean, yeah some yeah. of them even in in, um, in American Psycho as yes. well. So is that kind of a, a reliability thing for you? You like to work with similar people or is it just you just Know what they can deliver, and so you get them in. It's always really handy as a director having a prior
2: set of communications with actors and knowing how they work, and them knowing how you work. and And I, um, as a director, uh, really. Push actors to sort of uh, quite extreme levels of of performance in terms of kind of like dialing up levels of camp and abstraction and sort of physicality. So um, it is it is quite handy to have a, a sort of performers who know what they're what they're in for, and we have that set of um, that sort of shorthand already. It's not just sort of uh, you know saying oh these these are great actors. I'm just going to find a way to shoehorn them into yeah. a role. I mean they're also just happen to be the perfect actors. For these roles, as you go on as a director, you start to kind of find your circus tribe or your circus group mm-hmm. of, of sort of those who you kind of really jam and sort of vibe with and you constantly sort of want to work, you know, with them or find opportunities to sort of work with them because they're
1: just, you know, such incredible sort of chameleon humans. Just touching on what you were saying about bringing out this, that or the other, mm. how... Challenging is it to get everyone in a production on the same page so they're all kind of consistent? You know how sometimes you see something and you go, they're all in different plays? I think it's all about getting the casting
2: right Mm. when you audition the actors. You can kind of tell when you're auditioning what what the parameters are Mm. for sort of understandings of worlds or kind of, you know, the yes and, like, or what sort of, like, offers... Um, or levels of playing each performer has within their um, incredible set of um, of skill and um, but uh, yeah, in terms of getting um, you know all all performers on the same level, it is it is can sometimes be tricky, mm. um, but it's uh, it's often helped by. Sort of having shared references, so trying to sort of early on, sort of sort of you know reference. It kind of needs to be like this, or like a mashup of this and this. And and I um I often sort of tend to throw sort of like absurd sort of kind of hybrid mashups together. Like it's you know it's like home and away, but out of space. You know, like just sort of things like that. So you have these kind of like. Calling cards are like, mm. everybody knows Touch home point. and away, mm. everybody knows out of space. So then when you put it together, it's like, okay, cool. We know what we're doing, mm. you know? Um, uh, yet to do Home and Away out of space. So if anybody's looking for a production of Home and Away out of space, I'm here. Um, but, um, but no, God it's, it's about it's, yeah. <laughs> but it's about finding it's about finding those um, those reference points that everyone can tune into to get them
1: on the same page, and they could be incredibly abstract. We touched when we were talking about American Psycho about the size of the stage and so on. Uh, listening to putting on the ritz, it sounds like there's a lot of high kicks going on there uh, in that sort of the dance bit. How how are you going to do that? <laughs> (laughs) Well, well, Lee is doing our choreography, and I mean, put it put
2: it this way: um, it's not going to. I think it's safe to say it's not going to look anything like the film, or um, or at least sort of feel like the film um, at all. It's what uh, what we I think we have planned for that number is going to be um, quite quite strange and. and uh, yeah, it, I don't think there's yeah, there's not really going to be any tap dancing or or kick lines there. Mm. So uh, yeah, watch this space for exactly <laughs> what happens.
0: Now
1: let's move to uh, another hat that you wear because you're also co-director of the Old Fitz Theatre. Yes. Um, now I have to say I, I find this as a bit of a hidden gem of Sydney's theatre life. Can you tell us a bit about the? Old yeah, Fitz? it is another. It is like it is such a hidden gem.
2: I it's. It's one of the um, one of the best theaters in Sydney. It's this little 65 seat theater in the middle of Woolloomooloo. Blink and you'll miss it. It's kind of attached to this sort of small this small pub called the Old Fitzroy Hotel. Mm. And um, yeah um, I just recently uh, joined uh, the team there with Cat uh, Davies and Con Costi and the three of us uh, the artistic directorate now and, and um, it's it's such a little melting pot of, of incredible emerging theater and some of the you know the careers of uh, Australia's greatest performers like you know Tim Minchin and Kate Mulvaney and you know the, you know the list goes on with lots of different names had their careers start um, at the um, the old Fitz theater so it is just really if you want to kind of see what the next sort of gen theatre makers and performers where you know where they're hiding it's in this in this venue and it's um it's really exciting to be part of the team and sort of helping to sort of um, uh, program you know where we head next with what shows mm. we produce there and um, yeah looking forward to sort of um, announcing uh, our is se- our season for this year um, in a couple of weeks and um, and then opening to the public um, mm. in March so yeah is there anything particular that you're hoping to achieve with the theatre. Oh, one of the th- one of the big things between Cat Con and myself that we've been really um, really keen on doing is finding a place in uh, Sydney theatre that really celebrates uh, form and you know differences in, um, in 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 approaches to theatre making. So not just presenting plays, but presenting you know elements of devised work, you know musicals, opera. Um, uh, sort of yeah, absurdism. So uh, uh, we're really um, sort of looking forward to sort of pushing the programming in, um, into a for- more um, formalistically diverse territory, as well as um, bringing some really exciting theatre makers to the space who haven't yet made theatre in there. So, um, yeah, just sort of kind of shaking it up a little bit, put it that way. <laughs> doesn't hurt for something to be
1: shaken up. Are oh, they? yeah, shake it. <laughs> well, uh, time for a bit more music, I think. The next track we'll hear is Screw Loose from Cry Baby. Now, why do you want us to hear this? Um, well, Crybaby um,
2: was uh, the first musical that I ever directed, and um, and that was back in two thousand and eighteen. Um, and this is just a um, a fun little song um, uh, in the show, which is sung by Lenora, who's deeply in love with Crybaby and cannot stop thinking about him. Um, maybe a little bit problematically so, but um, yeah. but it's a fun it's a fun little musical, and yeah, it was my first my first endeavor into into directing musical theatre. And um, yeah, it's a great little number about halfway through the show.
1: From Crybaby, uh, the choice of my guest in conversation today, the director and lighting designer Alex Berlage. Alex, I'd like to go back to your sort of formative years now, if I, if I may. Did you always see the theatre and particularly musical theatre in your future when you were a
0: child?
2: Yeah, um, strangely, strangely uh, so. When I was uh, younger, I think my parents can attest that I was a very theatrical child from an early age, I somehow found the dress-up box quite early on and um, would often sort of, you know, put on little pantomimes and shows all around um, the house. And um, whether, whether they liked it or not. <laughs> whether they liked it or not, you know, famously did a, you know, we had this like cardboard like sort of little cubby house sort of thing, um, famously did a rendition, um, from sound of music through the window, um, once that was beautiful, wearing a, like a beautiful blonde plait, even though Maria doesn't wear a bl- blonde plait, but that's fine. That's, um, right. that's what we call interpretation and, um, artistic freedom and artistic license. Um, and then when... when the, ho-
1: was... the whole thing or just the opening number?
2: Oh, just the opening oh, number. Right. No, no, I needed to, like, you know, needed to save it, but, I'm um, also, um, a, uh, somehow conned my dad into building me a little stage in the backyard. Like, and it was like this sort of little sort of like platform thing. And then kind of like, it had like a proscenium arch and like the, the proscenium arch was essentially just like a frame, frame of wood. Um, and then, you know, the curtain was kind of like, you know, tarpaulin and then we had like the Star Wars episode bed sheet as the backdrop and then a mirror ball hanging on it and (laughs) you know and it was you know somehow I managed to sort of I think I was doing that many shows that he's like okay yes you need a stage have a stage and you know and 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 there we go and there's this famous this is not famous but um there's this
1: uh famous in your family famous in my family
2: (laughs) um this photo of me like kind of standing you know in this purple sort of like synthetic shirt holding a microphone in front of this stage and then my dad off to the side like playing his electric guitar I have no idea what we were doing I feel like we were doing a tribute to the 2000 Olympics opening ceremony or something but yeah we did we I did a lot of shows and I managed nothing to do with Peter Allen nothing to do with Peter Allen but (laughs) like I roped in a lot of the kids in the street to be in these like full Well, that was my next question yeah Yeah, yeah. full-blown theatrical and had no say they're like you're <laughs> going to be in it and you're going to be holding this and you have to so i think I didn't know at that stage that I wanted to be a director, but I feel like it was kind of like, I feel like my parents were like, Mm. yeah, yeah, we'll see what's going to happen. Or, you know, you know, secretly they'd be going tonight into their bedroom and crying and being like, we failed. Our son wants to go into the arts. (laughs) Like, oh my gosh, we failed. He's not going to make any money. He's going to, it's going to be, it's it's a complete disaster. All we wanted was a son who was a doctor, you know, but they encouraged it. So what, you know, they were theatrical enablers, Um, (laughs) but uh, yeah, so from early age, I knew that. And then I, um, I did. I uh, dance all throughout, um, all throughout uh, sort of primary school and then beginnings of high school. And I went to McDonough College to do dance, um, which is a performing arts high school. And then, um, you know, when I went to year eight, I decided to get more into acting. Um, and, and, and then sort of, uh, as I got towards the end of high school, sort of started to discover more of the behind the scenes again. Mm. So got really interested in, in sort of design and kind of direction and, um, and then sort of led, led me, you know, to where I am now, luckily. It was very clear from a young age that I was always going to be Mm. something theatrical and whether that was like, uh, you know, theatrical in in sort of art making of a visual arts uh, world or theatrical in performance, whether I was going to be on stage or off stage it was always, I think, very clear that that was the thing I was going to do. And mostly because I don't think I could do anything else. Like mm. I, I, deep in sort of 2020, I was like, went on to seek.com.au or, if, or, or you know, like a job seeking ad uh, website. And I was like looking at like alternate jobs. I was like, oh my gosh, I need to find a new job. Like theatre's dead. What am I going to do? And I was just like going through, I was like, oh, yep. No, not interested in that. No, I can't do that. No, And then Every single time I found a job that maybe I could do, I was like, oh, well, look, it said minimum five years experience. Well, that's stupid. I can't do that. I think it's, I've sort of realized that it's, it's literally, I think the, um, yeah, this is the only profession that I really feel mm. a connection to or something I can I, I really uh, sort of need to do and can do. So
1: Well, I think you passed the point of no return, really. I think <laughs> I have passed the point of no
2: return now. So, um, you know, catch me catch me in um, you know, picking uh, fruit one day if it all goes bad. Oh, dear, when the pandemic enters, yeah. enters its 10th year. What about performing? No, I I mean, I think I think I'm better off uh, with people never seeing me on stage. Um, I hate, um, yeah, I, I, I don't like getting in front of audiences. Every single time I have to make a speech in front of an audience, I'm like, <gasps> like you know, I'm just like get so nervous. Oh, yeah. It's different yeah. when you're eight years your old in a. Oh, I know. Shirt. Um, <laughs> I know. So yeah, it's a bit. Yeah, I can't. I can't do it. Um, that's sort of been and gone. Been and gone. So do you remember the first musical you ever saw? Yeah, so the first uh, the first musical I ever saw, um, well, I think it was either the first musical or it was one of the first musicals, mm. but it was definitely the first musical that I remember seeing was actually Singing in the Rain. Ah.
0: Yes. The film or, the, or
1: on stage? On stage. Ah, right.
2: And I think it was with, like, I think, I can't remember, I think, was Lisa McCune in it? Uh, Todd McKenney was in it, or, or, or for sure. But it was at the Lyric Theatre and, um, and... It was the, uh, it was, you know, incredible production, but it's stuck with me since seeing it. And it's that moment where like, you know, Gene Kelly's character. Yeah. Yeah. He's just like walking around the street and then suddenly it starts raining on stage. And I was like, oh my gosh, it's raining inside. This is amazing. What is this witchcraft? Um, and it was that moment there when I was watching, you know, this sort of, this musical and seeing it rain on stage that I was like, oh, I like this. This is good. This is, this is, this is, a, I think I want to do this. I think I want to do more of this. So yeah, that's, that's a musical for me that really sort of encapsulates, um, kind of the sort of birth of this kind of love of kind of performance in theater. And it was really special.
1: Well, I think I'm gonna to have to play a bit of singing in the rain now that you've just told that story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I suspect that's why you've chosen for us That to is hear exactly it.
2: why I've chosen it. So here it is. <laughs>
0: happy again I'm laughing at clouds so dark up above the sun's in my heart and I'm ready for love let the stormy clouds chase everyone from the place come on with the rain Smile on my face. I walk down the lane with a happy refrain. Just singing, singing in the rain, dancing in the rain, cha-cha-cha, cha-cha-cha.
1: singing in the rain it was raining on stage uh, for that but Alex that was maybe the first musical that you'd uh, seen on stage but you must have been watching uh you know the films and oh, you mentioned the sound of music like performing a bit of the sound of music so that's obviously part of everyone's dna I think mm. so was it a shock to see that musical a musical on stage for the first time versus the the kind of the film versions yeah um I can't remember
2: uh, many of the musicals I watched many of the film musicals that I watched as an early age I think I watched a, a few like my you know my grandparents they loved a musical so yeah I remember watching uh, you know your sound of music Your singing in the rains you know all of that sort of you know canon and period of of um, film uh, musicals and um, yeah there, there is nothing quite like watching it live on stage though. Mm. Um, you know, really this, the way the kind of the music sort of gets in you and the sort of the, the spectacle of it is, is fantastic. But, um, I mean, also going to the, um, to the, the film uh, productions that like singing in the rain is such a beautiful film. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, just the, the, the scale and the, and the, um, and the, the theatricality and the design is credible and they're really special little, um, Little memories—the first time you you watch those um, those film musicals—they're they're really great.
1: Mm. I'd like to talk about your work as a lighting director because needs to touched on that. How does that intersect with your stage direction work?
2: Yeah, so um, I, so when I finished high school, I went and studied at NIDA and did the production course there and, uh, and got uh, spat out the other side three years later as a lighting designer. Um, uh, spat in the most loving way, not, not, uh, not like <laughs> trash to the side, but just like, it's like, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a course where you basically, you go and do the production course at NIDA when you're like, I want to make theatre, mm. but I don't quite know how I want to make it or what I exactly want to do. Mm. So you could come out as a sound designer, lighting designer, stage manager or producer, you know, it's, it's that sort of course. And it was incredible and exactly what I needed. Um, So then I spent a few years working as a lighting designer and, uh, you know, doing works in theater, musical theater and Mm. dance. And then I was lucky enough to, to go over, um, to do this uh, course called the Watermill Summer Watermill International Summer Program, which is in the Hamptons and run by a theatre director called Robert Wilson and uh, did that um, in 2014. And you spent six weeks just with a bunch of artists of multi, of across disciplines um, and um, from all over the world. And it sort of taught me that you don't just have to be one artistic occupation or one artistic mm-hmm. discipline. And you can actually, you can actually work across all disciplines and that's actually some of the most exciting ways to make theatre is to, is to have little sort of hands and pots in different things and Mm. put on this hat for this project or put on that hat for that project. So it kind of allowed me to sort of open up the way, um, I considered myself as an artist and a theatre maker. So I decided to then go and, um, and apply to study directing at NIDA and was lucky to get in and, um. And I'd never directed anything before, so it was like a big gamble. But, um, I mean, the way that I see kind of my lighting and directing um, careers intersecting is um, l- lighting is is kind of like the cinematography of the stage. Yeah. You, I mean, you are, as a lighting designer, your job is to control the, the tone and the mood and and tell the audience where to look, but tell them where not to look, mm. but also tell them how to look at something. And so when you look at, you know, what a, a cinematographer does, they do all those exa- exa- exact same things. Um, and the cinematographer, essentially, y- your film is dead without a cinematographer, you know, mm. a, a good cinematographer at least. So the, um, the intersection of, of lighting design and directing is actually far more... Um, integrated and they're much similar occupations in terms of their overall outcome, um, than one actually would think. The only difference is one is inherently more technical and more sort of kind of computer-based and the other is much more sort of human-based, but they all actually trying to get the same outcome. Mm. So it's, um, they've actually been really interesting how those two, parts of my brain or two careers, uh, really, um, have great influence on each other. Yeah. I find that I've become a better director, um, through my lighting, but I also find like I've found that I've become a better lighting designer through my directing, which mm. is, um, which is
1: nice. Yeah. Cause I was going to ask about that intersection. It does, it must inform the directing. Um, oh, it does a hundred percent.
2: You know, it's a, uh, it's, it's hilarious because often I'll either light a show, or I'll light and direct the show, or I'll just direct the show. And so times when I'm lighting and directing a show, I'll often block someone to just be like, hey, for this entire number, all you need to do is stand on the spot. Just stand on the spot. You don't need to do anything else except that. And the actor's like, what? Like, what? Like, what do you mean just stand on the spot? I was like, you'll be fine. You'll be stand, stand on the spot. And um, and you know, that's my lighting designer being like, I like, I know exactly how it's going to be lit, and there's going to be things happening around them, you know. So it's kind of this, it's this great confidence to be, you know, when you're in a rehearsal room to know that what seems like a terrible blocking choice in a fluorescent lit a rehearsal room, it's it's nice to have that sort of knowledge of what it could look like. Mm. Um, when you get to the theatre.
1: And trusting it. And
2: trusting it, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, instinct, instinct as a, I was having a conversation with someone the other day and your strongest skill sets or your strongest tools as a director is your instinct. Mm. And if you can't trust your instinct or the moment where you fail to trust your instinct is when things will start to go pear-shaped.
1: So moving on, you um, went to Britain in 2019 to work with the Birmingham Royal Ballet and Sadler's Wells in London. How did they come about? Yeah, it was, it was one of the strangest ways
2: I've ever gotten a, um, a lighting design um, opportunity. I was lighting a Sydney dance company at the end of 2018. They did, they did this thing called uh, New Breed, which they do every, every year at Cabbage Works, which is for emerging choreographers, mm-hmm. uh, each making a, about a 20-minute work. And um, I lit that. And then I got an email from this German set designer, two days later, um, basically asking if I'd be interested, uh, interested in going over to Birmingham to light this ballet and he apparently he was in town and he'd seen the production the night before and, um, wanted to meet up for a coffee and I thought I was being trolled. I thought wow. I was like, I was like, like what? This is, this is, this is strange. So I met, um, his name was Thomas. I'm, you almost deleted his spam. I right? was, I was always <laughs> just like, no, I'm not giving you my bank account details. I'm not interested <laughs> in marriage. Um, and, um, and so we made our coffee and, and we yeah, worked with um, uh, uh, Thomas Mika and he's, he's this incredible, incredible set and costume designer. And um, the choreographer um, was a, a guy called Jack Lister, who is actually based in Brisbane. So um, we went over there and um, yeah, spent a few weeks in Birmingham in the UK, um, lighting this ballet at the Birmingham Hippodrome. And um, it was in, in such an incredible experience. The first time I lit ballet and it was in Birmingham. So it was this... This uh, like surreal, very surreal moment, um, and uh, yeah, really artistically um, exciting and satisfying experience. And then that that piece uh, traveled to Sadler's Wells um, about a month or so after. Um, so yeah, it was a really wild experience that one. And <laughs> um, but yeah, really, really awesome. So
1: do you plan to go overseas? when we're allowed to. <laughs> oh, I
2: would love to. I to love work. I love I love travelling and I love I would love to um to either tourist overseas more or work overseas. Well yeah, it was the working I was yeah. meaning, though. Oh yeah, know. I yeah. would I would I would I'd love to do that. I mean I was um you know meant to spend a bit of time overseas in um in September um last year but um for obvious reasons um mm. yeah couldn't uh but yeah I'm really keen to spend more time overseas at some point in our hopefully not too distant futures
1: mm. how important is, do you think international experience is for um for artists working in australia
2: i think it's really important i think i think it's really uh, integral to know what's happening outside of our own theatrical bubble i feel like if we're if we only ever see work or in, or um or engage with work that is made within our own backyard we I think we run the risk of creating a house style Mm. and like a kind of and just make and sort of really limiting what theatre can be or what theatre should be, I suppose. Uh, So, you know, by engaging with different uh, forms and different... Uh, approaches to theatre making and different aesthetics, I think, is really integral. Um, so yeah, I think yeah, going going overseas or even just like it, um, you know seeing imagery or videos from productions around the world is 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 really important. And I think you know we should we should treat theatre like it's any artwork or any art form. We're constantly listening to music from overseas. We're constantly looking at painting or or writing from overseas. So much should be said for our um, our uh, intake and engagement with theatre, I suppose.
1: Mm. Well, I think we have to have our final piece of music now, and we're actually sort of going back to the beginning, what we talked about. At uh, the beginning of the program, Alex, can you tell us about what we're about to hear now?
2: Oh yes. Yeah. So um, this next track is um, in the air tonight, uh, as performed by the original Broadway cast of um, American Psycho, and uh, it's uh, it's an adaptation or a, a cover of uh, the famous Phil Collins uh, song, and it's, it happens in this really haunting um, uh, moment in the show, and it's 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 when performed live, it is so stunning and just sends chills down your spine and it's um yeah i think it's actually besides the fact that it's in a musical that i've worked in i think it's uh worked on my apologies it's it's um it's actually i think one of my favorite pieces of music um of the last few years it's really it's really beautiful i
0: can feel
1: appeared, well, originally by Phil Collins, but appeared in the musical version of American Psycho, which my guest in conversation today, Alexander Belage, was, well, responsible for at the Hayes Theatre in 2019. Alex, just to finish off, I want to talk about professional development, which I find I'm very curious about when it comes to professionals, because when you're established with directing credits under your belt and all the rest of it, how do you assess your own work and grow? I'm so glad,
2: um, you know, you asked this question and maybe I should pay you um, uh, for asking that question because I don't think about it enough. So, um, so uh, I do regular therapy. Yeah. What's your, what's your rate? Because I do need to start having this conversation with someone. No, I, I'm really, I don't have, I don't think I have a game plan, although I don't consciously have uh, a plan of like, you know, where I want to be in five years or where I want to be in 10 years. I've always approached decision-making like based on intuition and instinct and what feels right and what like my gut says, this feels like the right decision. This feels like it's leading towards something good. And I've never sort of like kind of sat down with my dream chart and be like, I need to do this on this date and that on there. (laughs) And I need to find a way to somehow get into that room and talk to that person.
1: And if I haven't done this by 2024, 20, yeah, yeah. I'm a and failure. Yeah, like, and it's all the failure. <laughs> like, I
2: don't, I, don't, I don't do, like, the mastermind chat with, like, your strings and your, like, your blue tack and your, like, your pins and your photos. Like, none of that. Because I feel like that's only going to set yourself up for disappointment and failure. Um, whereas I think, you know, if you're a... If you're, a, like, a sort of an artist or an art maker you should just be following your gut instinct about what is going to help me feel artistically fulfilled and what are the steps that I'm going to need to take which is going to continue on that, that journey of having a conversation with with audiences, of, uh, you know, of putting provocations on stage, of feeling, yeah, feeling artistically um, uh, satisfied. So I've, I've been really lucky that, every single decision I've been lucky enough to be in the position to have made has uh, led to, uh, has has done me well. Mm. And and I think that's about really trusting your instinct and your intuition. And, and I can see potential paths for me along the way that I could be heading towards, which, you know, could be quite nice to keep going down there, but I'm sort of keeping myself open to what what's in store and what could happen um, because I think that's you know, a nice thing to sort of allow yourself to just sort of mm. take every offer, every provocation that might come your way and, and deal, with when, deal with it when it does.
1: So are there any projects on your bucket list?
2: Um, yes, there are. The Sound
1: of Music full version without the blonde. Plan. Uh, look, I would love to do <laughs> Sound of
2: Music set in a retirement village. Um, no, um, oh, look, I've got you know. I think we, I think we all have. Um, I think we all have you know a lot of shows that we sort of sit on and we just like we dream about. Um, but uh, yeah, we, there's definitely there's definitely projects in the dream bank uh, that I'd love to do at some point. But um, you know, we'll see if they we'll see if and when they
1: happen. Do you have any plans to write a musical, perhaps? We've been toying with it ah, a little bit. It was one of those a little... things you were dancing around just now. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah,
2: not yeah. Um, been toying with um with a with a really incredible um, a writing collaborator of about making a project which might end up being a musical. Um, so, yeah, who knows? Okay. Who
1: knows? Well, I think we might have to leave it at that because you're being far too mysterious <laughs> now. Alexander Berlage, it's been an absolute delight to talk to you today. Lovely to speak to you too. Thank you for having me. Director and lighting designer Alexander Berlage, my guest on In Conversation today. His production of Young Frankenstein is on at the Hayes Theatre from the 18th of February. Get along to Haystheatre.com.au to find out more. That's the program for this week. A reminder that you can now get this program as a podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or from wherever you download your podcasts. And you can catch up on previous editions of the program there too. And most importantly, don't forget to leave a rating and review. It helps other like-minded people find the program. I'm Simon Moore, thanking you for your company on Fine Music Sydney. for listening to In Conversation. This episode originally aired on Fine Music Sydney, 102.5 FM, streaming and DAB+. It was presented by Simon Moore and produced by Joe Goddard. For more episodes, just head to
0: finemusicsydney.com/inconversation.